Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. How early do you need to start to attract the cybersecurity experts of tomorrow? Is it first jobbers, university graduates or school leavers? Or do we need to start much younger? Do we need to go back as far as early years education to awaken interest? And if we do, how do we maintain it? Karen Worstall is a senior cybersecurity strategist at VMware, who's been working on improving both recruitment and retention of talent, and in improving diversity within the business. But, she says, security firms are largely competing within the same pool of potential employees, not least because of growth across the board in technology. I think there's a tremendous competition for talent. I'm seeing that in the marketplace right now. Um, people who are highly skilled in cybersecurity, particular in, particularly in, in technological areas, are in extremely high demand. And, um, and the vendors are needing them as much as the companies who you know, run an operational cybersecurity environment. So um, yeah, the competition is, is fairly fierce. And um, uh, that, so that's, you know, that's just, that's just a reflection, I think, of supply and demand as the, just as the, the pipeline weakened as a result of the pandemic and a number of other factors in our educational systems, um, we, we, also face this exploding threat. So it, it's a little bit of a perfect storm that's come together here. And um, and we're needing to innovate at a, at a pace that's faster than ever before. We're needing to um, develop a, a skill set and a skill base within a bench within an organization that allows actually for our people who are frontline people to not be always on 24 by seven. Um, if you, if you, I, I, sometimes I spend a, a little bit of time on my weekend doom scrolling on Twitter and, and uh, some of the other sites that people talk about their security careers and um, it's not looking real, it's not looking great out there and, uh, from the standpoint of work-life balance, let's put it that way. So we need to think about not just the bench, but the depth of the bench. And, and so all of those things are coming together, you know, needing to have a depth of a bench, not just a bench, needing to um, ad address a shortage in the pipeline with, and needing to um, compete in this environment where resources are in such high demand for a constantly evolving skill sets. So I hope that answered your question. It does. And we're seeing this squeeze from both sides. And I think that's what potentially is different to where we were in, say, 2018, 2019, because we've had this massive expansion in the requirement to do business online at the same time as we have potentially failed to address some of the recruitment and retention issues that are longstanding concerns you know, in the whole of the technology industry and not just in, in cybersecurity. To what extent do you think that increase in demand for cyber skills is going to be a blip, though? Will it settle at a, a lower level or settle down at a level we can then work towards? Oh, wouldn't that be lovely? <laughs> uh if, if it were to settle down, that would tell me that the um, 
the threat landscape had settled down. And I've never seen that happen. I've never seen the threat landscape take a step back. <laughs> I've always seen it build on. Um, hey, here's the, here's the real problem. The conundrum is not only is a threat landscape um, in other words, the you know the gigantic um, market opportunity in cybercrime that has never diminished. That's growing very very quickly. We have an added component now of geopol. Uh, I think in heightened geopolitical issues, um, we have, as you mentioned, this change in our you know workplace of the future, where we have people that are now distributed all over all over the place, which has opened up um, uh, new vulnerabilities and opportunities for that cybercrime community to, to take hold. And business has gotten uh, more competitive. And the expectation in the online world is that <clears throat> companies are going to deliver um, uh, new and delightful services faster than ever. And, and just kind of keeping up with that expectation that says, yeah, it's not enough to, to deliver a quality service. It, it, it actually needs to delight the customer and needs to delight the customer more than the competition and needs to deliver services faster. So we have a DevSecOps cycle or a de let's call it a DevOps cycle that is um, probably unrealistic from this, what we're starting to see from the security standpoint. So we're deploying things, we're, we're deploying new technologies and adopting new technologies faster than we're figuring out how to secure them. So I don't think it's going to be a blip on the screen to answer your question. I think that unless something dramatic really changes and disrupts this cycle that we're in, um, of increasing expectations, increasing threat landscape, um, uh, diminishing skill set. We're going to continue to have this problem. But then that brings us on to the question of what can be done about it. So we know that educators and we know that governments have been trying to encourage more people to join cybersecurity. Uh, so that pipeline is important. But let's look at the question firstly of retaining people. So you talk about the depth of the bench. And the fact that working in cybersecurity isn't necessarily an excellent place to be in terms of work-life balance. It is a hard job. And I think perhaps some people are unrealistic about how they present that. It does involve being called out. It does involve potentially long hours. It does involve stress. What can we do before we look at the pipeline and bringing more people in? What can we do to make the environment more attractive for people who are already in it and help them to develop so they can take on higher level jobs, take on more responsibility and, and be more effective. I'm going to process this one out loud with you. Uh, but I think we in some ways need to start with the man with management. Um, we need one of the things that I always tried to do in my past career uh, in, in, in leadership roles was to identify those places in the organization where the security team was what I call at the very tail end of a very long whip, which means, you know, when you play, when you, what is, what is that game where you, you snap the whip and who, you're on ice skates and whoever's on the tail end of the whip gets this gigantic lash that not, not that hits them, you know, but throws them across the ice. That's what it's like to be on a cybersecurity team, to be at the very end of that long whip. And it's up to management to, um, 
to sit down and say, where are the chokeholds upstream that we can improve these processes and improve the way we're doing things so that we don't continue to be to, to be thrashing in crisis mode. That um, that is a management job, and 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 it has to do with processes. It has to you know it's not just about making policies and throwing them out there and hoping people read them. It's it's actually sitting down and saying how are we doing this work, and what can we be doing to make it work better, more effectively. What do we have to do to give our team the tools necessary to operate uh, at you know their peak, so so that at least that stressor goes away. And I so I I would like to start there, and 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 have management recognize that one of the primary contributors to burnout in this industry is the frustration that comes when the organization is not operating effectively and people are paying the price. And so um, there's tremendous room for process improvement. There's a tremendous uh, room for um, improving the way we design and implement security controls and then sustain them. And, uh, and we've, we've, we've demonstrated that. And I think what's coming out is the market moves towards a more integrated technology base and a more integrated security control spot. So we're not dealing with, you know, an average of, of 50 different security technologies that somehow have to be knit together and maintained, we're going to see uh, some opportunities for making it easier for the teams who are doing the work. So I think it starts, I think it starts with management on that, on the process and technology side. It also starts with management on the people side, because we need people, we almost need management who are what I would call trauma aware, like how to recognize when your team has reached a point or an individual has reached a point where, you know, they're, they're at real danger of a, um, you know, self-protecting by, by checking out or self-protecting by leaving the job or, um, or just essentially being uh, unhappy and uh, disgruntled and sharing that uh, loveliness with all the rest of the team. So management needs to really and this is challenging, right? In a in a purely digital world where we rarely see each other in person, but we're going to need to develop those skills as leaders and managers to to recognize when things are not okay, and to get ahead of the curve on that, and let people know that you that you are paying attention, and it's not a matter of dinging them for their performance or for you know something like that. It's a matter of you know, being a compassionate human being, which I think we could all use more of in this world right now, and um, and, re- and and reach out to the team and say, look, you know, this is a super tough job. I get it, and I want you to come and talk to me about that, and and actually have management have the skills to be able to have that conversation. I think that. I think that's the next generation of leadership we really need to see in this space. So understanding that that support is actually really important in terms of effective performance. Critical. You, I mean, you know, what's the saying? People don't leave their job, they leave their manager. Um, so let's start there and see what we can do about making 
um, the workplace better, but that burden is not, that burden is not necessary. There is a certain amount of that responsibility on the, on, on the, let's say the cybersecurity technologist who has to kind of handle how they frame things and how they look at things and how they problem solve. Certainly, you know, they have a share in that, but, but so much of what they do in their daily job is outside of their control and determined by circumstances outside of their control, what can management do to, to, um, to take the kinks out of the process that just make it that much harder? It does. What you haven't explicitly mentioned there, though, is automation. Is that because you view that as something that will happen alongside or within the other points? Or do you think actually that the question of automating cybersecurity is being somewhat overplayed? There's only a certain amount of automation that's going, that there will always be a human factor involved here. Always. Human, human, uh, our ability to interpret. And um, I, I think there's a huge space for machine learning for uh, artificial intelligence. And in fact, we talk about that at VMware when we talk about the, the, the intelligence cloud that we've built that drives the security in our environment, right? From our standpoint, though, that is a combination of telemetry, of, you know, of data, of input from thousands of, of, of sources, and from the machine learning and artificial intelligence that can, that can apply, um, you know, pattern recognition and a certain a certain amount of things that we tell it to do. But the human side of that also is um, looking at looking at new and uh, previously n- never seen before kinds of um, uh, security events and and put the human perspective in on these and doing that analysis offline and putting that data into the system so the machine learning system has that to work with so we'll never fully get away from having this be a uh, a human um, a human interaction that being said you know automation orchestration all of that wow that our capability for handling the volumes of data that we have to deal with now and doing that through automation that is the only way that can happen and so we talk a little bit of, we, we talk actually quite a lot about um and this is not a new thing, by the way. Self-healing networks has been a conversation for at least the last twenty years. Um, but w- when we talk about when we talk about taking the state of the art of technology powered by an intelligence cloud, we call it Contexa at VMware. But that that intelligence cloud that basically um, informs and helps to uh, notify and drive the kinds of actions that that if you have automated functions in there that 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 can you know take advantage of that intelligence that's that's going to be really key but you're never going to have that total intelligence without the human factor involved so 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 we'll never I, I don't believe that we're going to solve the the human problem or the human shortage with automation here here's what i would say automation like an uh, artificial intelligence and all of that that you know that's there for doing the the jobs that are are um that are difficult for humans to do from the standpoint of visibility but also that are fairly 
you know, just repetitive. And I, and I have a friend here uh, where I live in Denver. She's a, a CIO, digital transformation leader. And one of the things she likes to say when it comes to artificial intelligence is a human mind is a terrible thing to waste, which means use art, use automation and, and all of that for the things where you don't need the human factor for that, that creative insight and that, oh, oh, what would happen if kind of, um, uh, kind of thinking and, um, and automate, automate the daylights out of the things that can be automated. And, and so, yeah, there's definitely room for that. Now I will say when we first started talking about self-healing networks, um, they, 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 they were, there was challenges involved in that because, um, and, and we'll have to figure out how to automate configuration management, I guess. But the, but the whole idea of having a network that dynamically modifies itself in response to the threat of the moment is a configuration management nightmare. And so um, I think there is some conversation that still needs to be had on that, that is on the very practical nuts and bolts side of using automation to fix the problem. Anyone who talks to me and says, look, automation is going to solve all this. I'm like, "Mm -mm, we've had that conversation before. Let's, and, and I'm not trying to be the, you know, the, the, the dowager stick in the mud here to say, this is not, <laughs> this is not, never going to move forward, but we need to be mindful about, about jumping to the next solution set without looking at its implications. And so we can always speed things up with automation, but, and we shouldn't, and we can, test that and show the metrics about how that improves things. But we need the secondary metric that says, and how, how does the overall management and sustainability of our environment change when the machines are making all the decisions? We, you know, it's a balance. And we're going to need to figure out what that happy spot looks like. So humans are always going to be required. And then that raises the question of the pipeline in terms of recruitment. So one of the issues that I think faces this industry is that there is a demand, probably in excess of supply by a significant margin. Different industry figures and organizations vary in their estimates. But you know, one figure is 2.7 million for cybersecurity alone. It's from ISC squared, but say there are others. But the same type of people are also in demand for fintech. They're in demand for other technology companies, for startups, uh, even social media companies, despite some of the recent headlines about them shedding labor. Governments are investing more in hiring people who know how to do these things because they want to go through the digital transformation journey. More people fishing in a smaller pool, potentially. How do we address that? I have seen some things that are very encouraging in this space. And I think this is something um, that my company does very well. And I'm actually, you know, I'm not involved in that process, but I'm quite proud of what they do to invest far upstream in, in the pipeline. And then not just to say, well, we're going to invest in the pipeline, but we're going to also make entry level positions available for those people to get their first job opportunity. And when they do get their first job opportunity, we're going to develop them for six straight months and put them through our university. That's going to give them the breadth of technological skills that they need in order to be successful. That is 
I kind of, you know, if I'm going to say I need the best technologists that I can get, I'm going to invest in making sure that they're out there or that we're, we're helping to create more of them. And I've seen the results of that for the people that have come into the organizations where I work and the skill sets that they bring to the table and the perspectives they bring on the tech, on advanced technology are quite impressive. Uh, I mean, I'm a little bit jealous (laughs) because I did it sort of the organic way in my in my lifetime. And I had the opportunity for a lot of on the job training on premises. And that was extraordinarily helpful that that world has changed. And that the process of, you know, you can't take 10 years to become. Of course, you can get 10 years of seasoned experience. That's that's very valuable. But. You need to get people up on the curve so much faster now. I think investing early in the pipeline is one way companies can help do that. And um, I, I think investing investing in the in the educational programs, but also, you know, there's secondary programs, um, um, postgraduate programs. There's of course all of those things. There's special there's specialty focused areas. But let's talk about how we how we start to integrate more of the technology into, let's call it STEAM, because it needs, I, I want to see the arts stuff go in there too, but let's talk about investing in that at all levels of education and using the technology that we have. And I, I know of a few large tech companies who are, who are doing this, um, investing in helping our um, state and local institutions with their educational process, make educational opportunities through technology more available to more people. Um, We saw a terrible um, situation happen when the pandemic hit and I live in Denver and I'm, I'm acutely aware of the technology divide that has affected education. And so um, here in Denver, that was a, a real issue. And I think some organizations really stepped in with technology and mentorship and everything else to help kids attract kids into the technology, but also keep them in the technology and kids who would normally be left out, give them the opportunity to be a part of part of that. So that's one way we can do it. It's a boil the ocean size problem. And, and I want to, I guess, you might hear it in in the way that I talk about this, but it, I think it's short sighted. It, it might be a band aid, but it might be a short sighted band aid to just focus on doing the security. Like, let's go train security people, because what we really need are people who are creative problem solvers, who are broad picture thinkers, but deep technologists, and that comes from a broader range of educational and development opportunities than, um, you know, these point solutions that says, I'm going to send you to a forensics class. There's a lot of opportunity out there, but I really think that the, um, you know, the model that I've seen from the big tech companies who are paying it forward and and saying we're investing in our pipeline. And, and it's not just bringing the, you know, the younger people in, it's also women returning to work. So women who've been out of the workforce and who want to return into the workforce, like, hey, we have an opportunity for you and we'll train you and give you, uh, you know, that that uh, leg up to get started. So there's lots of places we can look for people. It doesn't have to just be, you know, uh, 
you know, through their traditional education system. And just as you said earlier on, that we don't know where the next sets of threats will come from, what they'll look like, but we know there's every likelihood there'll be more of them. We need people with that flexibility of thinking so that they're not simply being trained to tackle today's or even yesterday's threats but have that agility so that they can work with new challenges and i think that's across the board as well so you know we want people who could equally be working on user interface design on human factors i mean these are all things that cut into security uh, as well as other aspects of technology but how far back would you go do you think that should be right back to early years education when do we start to awaken people this interest in technology which they then carry through to high school to university and into a career you know um one of my very good friends works at a major toy company works at mattel and i am so thrilled to see how they've changed the the way uh, as a toy company, they change the way children interact with their world um, by the way they 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 create non-gender specific opportunities for the kids to engage with technology. I have a little granddaughter; she just turned five. She loves ballet. She loves all of those kinds of things. But I thought I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to give her. Uh, the invisible man, you know, the anatomy doll where you can take all the guts out. <laughs> I gave that to her for her birthday. And she she's like, this is the best birthday present I ever got. And all of a sudden, for the first time, I hear from her that she wants to be she wants to be a scientist. She says, I'm going to be a scientist when I grow up. It starts young and getting them inspired in the thing that says, you know what, you can identify with this. And there's a saying I want to, there's a saying out there that says you can't be what you can't see. And I, you know, I'm the contrarian there. I just wholeheartedly reject that. I think we, we can be the things that we can't see. We must become and make, make children have the belief, core belief that they can become the things they don't see yet, because that's the kind of world they're going to be living in. The jobs that, that, that they're going to be doing don't even exist right now. We need to be enabling them to expand at, at a very early age, I think, expand their horizons about what's possible. What is the thrill of putting together a circuit that turns on a light? when you're five years old. Like, what? I made that? That's the kind of enthusiasm I would love for us to see very, very early. But then, of course, we've got to kind of continue it because through all stages of, you know, all stages of life, there's a variety of different challenges. Our, our desire to fit in, you know, I was always kind of the the, the nerdy kid and I didn't fit in, but I was kind of okay with not fitting in. <laughs> That's not true everywhere. And the pressure for kids as they go through their whole educational cycle to drop out of technology because it doesn't fit. It hasn't become cool. And I, th I think I think that is something we're going to need to deal with. And socializing the, the cool factor of things that we can do to make the world a, a, a a better place at a very early stage is, and, and, and all, all throughout the cycle is uh, really important. So actually, not just cybersecurity, but across the board, we need to be better advocates of the positives around technology. Here's the thing, right? Security is in everything. The, when we pigeonhole and make security a specialty, um, I think we do ourselves a disservice. It's like, how can you make any 
technology, a medical device, whatever it might be. But how do you make it in a way where it can't be used in an unintended way for evil? Let's just look at it like that. Every, Every piece of technology has security considerations in it. So we need to kind of broaden our scope. Yes, we have the need for people who are very skilled in, 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 you know, in, in incident detection and response. We have that. That's great. But security is, the reason we have such a high demand for that is because we have so much technology out there that's not got security built in. And so let's, let's look at it more broadly and let's, let's incorporate into everything the fact that any new technology we build also can be used in ways that were never intended. How do we identify that early and build that into everything we do? And, and so I guess, yes, I'm making that case that says, let's, let's develop the broad thinkers, the, you know, the, but, but also with the deep technical expertise. Both of those skills are are needed. VMware's Karen Warstel on the role businesses can play in the early pipeline for recruitment and on how, as an industry, we need to do more to make sure that technology has security built in from the outset. That's the only way we can cope with growing demand. That, though, is all for this episode of Security Insights. Our investigation into the cybersecurity skills shortage will continue with part four of this series on Wednesday, the 24th of August. We hope you can join us then. Meanwhile, you can catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, and, of course, on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.